0: Fifteen season two of the I save that podcast. This is the 2019's greatest hits edition of the I save that podcast. You've got Ramsey Nasrallah joined as always by Eric Sager, Ava director of communications and Java editor in chief. Eric, 15 episodes of the podcast. We're going to go through the five most listened to uh, segments of the year. And uh, it was a banner year for the podcast. It was a banner year for Ava. Um, what are we getting ourselves into here? What, what's the fifth most listened to episode of this year?
1: It's pretty crazy that we have 15 episodes. Actually, I think what our goal that we set was was 12, but right. you know things like Andy Murray getting hip replacement surgery happened, and the Australians took over an episode in 2019. You know all right. kind of stuff. So there's a lot of excitement around the podcast, as you mentioned, but neither of those, shockingly, was our. On the top five most popular, they were right outside though. Uh, But number five was episode eight, which was discussing all vessel health and preservation, especially the enhanced edition that Ava produced and published earlier this year. Uh, So it featured interviews with the Nancys, Nancy Moreau and Nancy Trick, who were the genesis behind, you know, creating that textbook. And then also we spoke to Evan Alexandro and Nicholas Mifflin uh, because they authored. A couple chapters as well so that one was uh, episode eight so that was probably in june july in the middle of the year that was our fifth yeah, most popular episode
0: yeah the uh and you can get that enhanced edition still org slash vhp it is a good stocking stuffer if you're if you're stuffing digital stockings <laughs> so that's that's yeah. number five i'm looking at the, the fourth most popular episode of of the year that was episode six That's when we had uh, Jim Davis and Dr. Marsha Ryder on representing uh, ECRI's top 10 patient safety concerns for 2019. And if memory serves, uh, number nine is uh, infections, the risk caused by peripheral IV cannulas, which is the first time that peripheral IV complications have not been overlooked. Rather, they're just looked because they're now on the ECRI top 10 list. That was episode four, I'm sorry, episode six, the fourth most popular episode of 2019
1: right and we should mention that i failed to mention this before but episode eight you know was brought to us by support from 3m b Braun, medline and teleflexes and they also helped uh, the eva foundation put on the the lunch and learn which was on the final day of the scientific meeting in las vegas um, in october which was a, a great success so shout out to them and then uh, the third most popular one was episode seven uh, which was the launch of AVA's new novel, best-in-class uh, innovative learning management system, uh, which we call AVA Academy. And it also featured an interview that I did with uh, Lauren Baki, who is a patient advocate, um, and she is also mother, mother to Everly, unfortunately had a, an infiltrated vein in her foot after she was born with congenital heart defects. So we kind of go into what it was like from a you know a patient perspective and a patient advocate uh, with Lauren and we also she wrote that perspective in the fall issue of the Journal of the Association for, for Vascular Access so you can hear her and you can also read about that experience there um, in the journal so that was the third most popular one in 2019
0: it's a great episode I believe that was sponsored by our friends at IV watch that's correct yes that's the third most popular edition of the I Save That podcast. The second most popular uh, was episode 12, and that was the Ava Scientific Meeting 2019 preview. We had interviews with a couple of the speakers that were coming in, uh, as well as uh, Dennis Ernst, who is the king of phlebotomy. That's uh, Mr. Phlebotomy yeah. at phlebotomy.com. I still think that's an amazing email address. I mean, that is an amazing how, email address. How big of a flex is that? Like, you know, flexing before you're about to get phlebotomized, flex. Um, talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> the the reach that the vascular access ecosystem has, that's episode 12. And I think let's stop at this point and and, and take a look. We were going to episode eight, episode six, episode seven, episode 12. That, that tells you that it's not just we're accumulating more listeners as the podcast continues to grow in popularity. It's, it's the segments too. It's the sponsors. It's we're trying to keep the, the dialogue and the chatter in the vascular access space fresh. And the fact that it's not just a progression of going to, you know, further back episodes tells you that uh, people are tuning in based on not just hearing your voice and and my dulcet tones, but the people who we bring on the show. So it's a testimony to to just how vibrant the space is.
1: Absolutely. And and episode 12 was a credit to Eloquest. They put us in touch with those uh, speakers. I think it was Alina Nelson Squires and Lee Steer who are both great people. And they had some great um, data to present in Las Vegas in October with everyone else that had a wonderful time at the scientific meeting. So, yeah, that your point really resonates with that. Um, I think people come and listen because they want to hear people like Dennis J. Ernst and Lee Steer and people like that and hear Learned about, it, yeah. you know, their perspectives and and how they handle themselves, you know, in their day-to-day in their day-to-day life um, as they worked within vascular access. So, and I believe it is appropriate to do a drumble before <laughs> We released the most popular one. Yes, thank you. The most popular episode of two thousand nineteen for the I Save The Podcast was episode five, which featured an interview, was a joint interview with Dr. Roel Paddock and Shelly DeVries, fan of the podcast. They discussed a recent HRQ report on, on reducing collapsy within hospitals and again shared their perspectives and what their hospitals and their institutions do. And it was really engaging and I think that that makes the most sense of why it received the most attention this year.
0: Yeah, really novel, uh, put together and, and by Ava, strategic partner, Access Scientific. Um, that is the, the top, most listened to episode of the year. So in, in order from five to one, episode eight, six, seven, 12, and episode five, thousands of you listened to the I Save That podcast in 2019. We hope thousands more of you will listen in 2020. Uh, thank you for your patronage, uh, both to Ava and to the podcast. And Eric, what are we gonna hear next?
1: After the short break, we'll play some music and then we'll go in and dive in right with little snippets of episode five, that most popular episode that we just discussed with Dr. Earl Paddock and Shelley DeVries. So thank you for everyone for listening. The following interview was published on season two, episode five of the I Save That podcast on March 26th, 2019. And now we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Raul Patak, a specialist in internal medicine, and Shelly DeVries, a senior infection control officer at Methodist Hospital in Indiana. Dr. Patak and Shelly are calling in from sunny Orlando, Florida, this morning. Uh, good morning to you both. And we also have Ramsey Nasrallah, CEO of Ava, Ava, of Ava on the line, excuse me, and Director of Clinical Education for Ava Judy Thompson.
2: We're going to be talking about vascular access and infection prevention. Surprisingly enough, when Shelly's on the phone, we Hmm. usually have those topics together. But um, let's talk, there's been an announcement even yesterday that was pretty important about infection prevention and and peripheral IVs. But the recent AHRQ report confirms this. Um, Let's let's talk about the vital role of um, the vascular access devices and how they affect infection prevention
3: well you had me at infection prevention and vascular access judy you're right there is <laughs> you know there's so much going on in this space right now as we're seeing increased awareness from every direction you you mentioned the recent ahrq report which moved clabs these as the most expensive hospital acquired infection and honestly the highest mortality as well and we're all in it for the patients every single day when we come to work but these are the reminders that there is still so much work to be done, and um, we've got people at the front lines, every patient, every day trying to make a difference. You had me at yesterday's announcement as well. Um, (laughs) I had you today. (laughs) I know, I know. ECRI came out with their top 10 patient safety list for 2019, and peripheral IV infections made that list. It did. Um, It it, did. I, I, I almost am at a loss for words that we are really seeing the awareness come down that every device, every line we put in our patients carries with it potential for harm, and identifying those risks allows us to to take measures to try to mitigate those risks and bring them to the absolute lowest level they can, which will tie in wonderfully with CDC's 2020 proposal that we may actually expand bloodstream infections to be all hospital-onset bacteremias not just CLABSIs. The The call for comments is out for that until April 15th. And I really, really hope we can get our awesome AVA networks and AVA membership online on the Federal Register, weighing in that when every line matters, every patient benefits.
0: I know some people who can, can pull those strings, Shelley. I, I have a question for you specifically about this. Do we have to stop using the word overlooked when we talk about the threat to patient safety that peripheral IVs present, or is it now is it now looked?
3: um i think this year is going to be pivotal with that uh with once we see how that that ECRI report is received in our hospitals and if the cdc proposal to expand surveillance actually comes into play i would like to believe in the next many years we will no longer have to say that complications from non-central lines are overlooked uh, i i'm definitely voting for that me too <clears throat> I Thank think. You. Now, Shelley, oh.
2: you and I have been working on a draft for membership to be able to send out for bloodstream infections. Now, that should be on our website on Friday. So
4: you and I need to
2: talk offline again. <laughs>
5: <laughs> All right. Fantastic.
4: And so uh, coming, to, coming to the point about uh, these infections being overlooked, to tell you the truth, a lot of hospitals pay a lot of attention to this, but they're not reported. Uh, just because they're not required to be reported, um, every hospital, uh, you know, with a peripheral line infection, um, it it makes a huge difference to them because it has to be reported as an incident incident report. So you know that hospitals are looking at it; they have the data, but they're not reporting it further because it, it's some of them consider it to be a fault on their own part, on the part of nursing. However, uh, these infections, we have to understand that these are infections that can happen just because there is an indwelling uh, substance in the patient's body and we need to address this and bring it to the, you know, bring it to surveillance and address that issue. Uh, Dr.
2: Paddock, well said, but I think you must be in some really good hospitals. I know, I think I want want to follow him. (laughs) Because the folks I've spoken to, and I know Shelley's spoken to, I'm not going to speak for you, Shelly, but I like to sometimes that they, when we ask infection preventionists, are you looking at your peripheral lines? Very few hands go in the air. In fact, my meeting I had in San Diego recently of 60 participants,
4: I saw two hands, so that's because that's again, that's because the data never reaches them, the data stays on the floor, on the nursing floor. It stays on the hospital floor because each floor, whenever they have uh, an incident with a peripheral line or an infection, it gets written up as an incident report and it stays on the floor, on the nursing floor, and it never goes forward to in- infection control because these are not the data that they're looking for. I
3: I, <clears throat> I love to hear this, and I think this is something
4: that we should probably explore a little more. What those any incident line-related incident should be brought forward to uh, infection control in hospitals. And this is something that uh, surveillance should Im- include.
3: And Do you think that,
4: did, go, sorry, Shelley, go ahead.
3: I just say, I, can't, I cannot wait for a day when that is the standard in all of our organizations um, and that that information does flow forward up to the highest level. So it's aggregated and trended, so that interventions can be put in place because <clears throat> the Blau article that just came out, once again, looking at hospital onset peripheral IVs, mirrors what Kovac said, that 36% of hospital onset staph aureus bloodstream infections are coming from peripheral devices. Blau said it a lot more clearly and a lot more explicitly, but but these are infections with complications that extend far beyond the period of the positive blood culture. Um, we're seeing it again and again, and it's time that every patient gets, gets the level of attention so that these can be prevented. I agree, I
2: think we're at the tipping point right now. I'm so and- excited. I know me too. Me too. This is singing to the choir right here. So beyond policies and procedures, um, are there different vendors and their quality of different products? Do they have an impact in your opinion on the, the outcomes for these patients?
5: So, so I think
3: that gets right back to data and understanding performance in each of our organizations. Dictated by the individuals we have at hand inserting our lines the incision uh, individuals we have Caring for our lines and understanding the performance of every single device in our institution When we look we stratify our data not just by inserter insertion location and uh, Physical location in the hospital, but when it comes to central lines by lumens and with our with our midlines and with our peripheral lines by vendor and by design And we absolutely see differences between products. Um, We have our, our uh, Midline article is actually getting ready to come out in the American Journal of Infection Control. I know Dr. Paddock has published repeatedly on Midlines looking at infections and and some more serious considerations as well, or not more serious, more thorough considerations beyond just the infection. But we we absolutely see differences between products. Um, And I think that needs to be part of our conversation when we're weighing How can we best affect patient outcomes? The products and the the product-specific differences really do need to come to the table, and that starts with understanding their performance in your own institution.
1: The following interview was published on Season 2, Episode 12 of the I Save That Podcast on September 16th, 2019.
0: And welcome to our first ever discussion of phlebotomy on the iSave.podcast. Uh, we're joined today by Dennis Ernst, who is a medical technologist and certified phlebotomist, as well as a leading authority on blood collection and vascular access. Dennis is a veteran of over 500 conference presentations, as well as the author of five books. So you could say he knows a little bit about phlebotomy. Uh, Dennis, how are you doing today?
6: I'm doing great. I'm doing great.
0: It's good to hear. We're also joined by uh, Dr. Laurel Wurtz, who is a nurse and vascular access expert, as well as a current member of the AVA Board of Directors. Uh, She has led phlebotomy teams uh, in her career, and she joins us from New York City today. Hi, Laurel.
7: Hi, Ramsey. Hi, Dennis. So glad to be on the call.
0: I'll get us started by uh, discussing the traditional role of a phlebotomy, Dennis, and I'd like to hear this from you. knowledge of pre-analytical factors like what how how has phlebotomy come from its roots to where you see it today as an expert in the field well phlebotomy's come a
6: long way uh as you know we used to uh take blood with leeches, so uh, uh, back in the dark ages, but uh, we're a whole lot more sophisticated now. We have a a certified workforce of phlebotomists that are drawing blood samples for diagnostic purposes, Um, and many states are getting on the bandwagon to require uh, those who draw blood samples to be certified and at least have minimum training requirements and certification, so there's an ever-increasing attention being paid to the roles phlebotomists Play in healthcare, and especially for the continuity of the laboratory process. Uh, phlebotomists have traditionally, up until, say, 40 years ago, the laboratory professional drew the blood samples because there was no, quote-unquote, phlebotomist position. Uh, over time, though uh, in in a concern for laboratory efficiencies and hospital efficiencies, this position was created so that we would have a laboratory professional who is focused solely and exclusively on, on collecting high quality blood samples and delivering them to the testing personnel who could then extract an accurate test result. So we have this Focused master of blood collection procedures and vascular access for the purpose of diagnostic sampling who uh, who really uh, can who really is well placed to be part of that patient care continuum so that patients are diagnosed medicated managed according to blood samples that have not been altered during the collection process and there's many ways that uh, those who draw blood samples can change the test result just by how they're drawing it um, how they're handling it how they're transporting it how they're processing it so this is a really key aspect of delivering quality patient care and letting physicians have the accurate information they need to treat their patients. It's one of the one of the most um, um, well published statistics that you see is that the laboratory uh, that laboratory test results um, uh, are responsible for 70% of the the objective information a physician receives on their patient's health status. That puts a huge responsibility on those who draw the samples to make sure that they're not corrupting them and the subsequent test results in the process. So phlebotomists get that. They're specialists in what they do. And now we're seeing an even greater utility for phlebotomists in coming and working closer with the nursing profession to help them extract samples from vac- vascular access devices. So their usefulness now is expanding well beyond the laboratory to be part of that nursing team because they are specialists in in inserting needles into veins in such a manner that they obtain high-quality samples. They bring that expertise to the to the side of the nurse and helps the nurse uh, uh, work her magic as well. That's a win-win team right there. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
7: I agree. Dennis, you know, what it was making me think of is I've managed phlebotomy teams before and vascular access teams, which are typically, you know, registered nurses. Um, But the most effective model I ever saw was exactly what you just described, where there was a very close connection between the phlebotomy team and the vascular access team. They were actually in the same department and functioning together as an expert team, uh, building off of uh, one another and and their professional expertise. It was when you really got to see that flywheel going of interdisciplinary uh, relationships and team building, and the outcomes certainly followed. So I would wholeheartedly agree and could attest to that in my own work-life experience.
6: Oh, you are exactly right. You nailed it, Laurel, because isn't it a beautiful thing when we get two formerly unassociated professions coming together at the patient's side for the benefit of, of patient care. I mean that we're really in an unprecedented times in this because when we bring these two disciplines together um, and things work to things will work to the benefit of the patient mm-hmm. and that takes that takes the quality of care uh, to a whole new level it really explodes the boundaries uh, of patient care because it eliminates a lot of the friction that used to exist between the nursing and the laboratory professions and it's bridging those two expertises and um i'm very excited about what that means for both professions but especially
0: for for patients and their physicians
7: yeah agreed
0: yeah and for ava i wrote an article on java a couple of issues ago uh, called leave no vein behind and i just got really curious coming out of um it wasn't a physical. I had to give blood for I was changing insurances, and and my phlebotomist uh, started asking me what I did for a living, and I talked about working for Ava, and uh, in the meantime, you know, th- I was in my kitchen table, and and it was a very unconventional uh, interaction with with a phlebotomist, and I started to wonder what kind of uh, what kind of role vessel health and preservation has for I think you told me before, Dennis, three hundred thousand phlebotomists in in the U.S. Am I am I right on that number? Yep, that's right. That's my estimate. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a it's a good transition into one of the the real passionate uh, plays within the Association for vascular access and that is uh, reducing sticks and, and and vessel health and preservation what uh, what kind of alignment and, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at with, with this uh, for, for you to both discuss the alignment to the vascular access community and reducing sticks um, and that that also feeds into guys, um, Drawing blood, drawing blood from central lines, drawing blood traditionally from, from, uh, from the vein. How, how do we align, or how can we better align a phlebotomy to the vascular access community?
6: Well, I'll tell you, I think there's multitude of benefits when, when, we, when we can do this, because when the traditional way of, of drawing laboratory samples by venipuncture is, is inherently dangerous for both the patient and the phlebotomist. So the more that we can avoid a, a needle, the better off we are that off the patients are see because the, the, the phlebotomists are would be less uh, uh, likely to sustain an accidental needle stick and uh, patients are less likely to sustain injuries one of the things i do, not because I like to or even want to, but this is, a, this is an, an, an aspect of my work that found me. I didn't go seeking it. But after I was in the field for a while as an educator and an author, uh, attorneys started contacting me to consult with them on cases of phlebotomy-related litigation or phlebotomy-related injuries. And it astounded me the nature and the extent to which patients are being injured during what you and I think of as a simple venipuncture. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're seeing nerve, uh, complicated nerve injuries that are that, that are lifelong. We're, we see injuries from patients passing out and breaking, fracturing bones and and spines. Uh, we're seeing uh, la- arterial lacerations. So so whenever whenever we have to obtain blood by venipuncture, we're adding multiple risks to to the patient and to the phlebotomist. So I, I'm really in favor of drawing more blood from an existing line or during uh, 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 the insertion of a line for those reasons alone. Yeah,
7: I I agree. Um, I think it's a risk versus benefit. You know, uh, when we talk uh, in the vascular access community right now, we talk a lot about central line associated bloodstream infections which are a serious risk to, to patients right. Uh, mortality, right? And, and yep, so you you know, we weigh the, the risk versus benefits in terms of what's better here, um, whether it's venipuncture uh, for that blood sample or is accessing the line uh, better. And and we have still a lot more to, to understand in the literature and the research. Uh, but what we're starting in the very beginning stages to understand is that minimizing the number of connections and disconnections to the central line is important, okay, as well as the education and competency of those who are accessing the line to make sure that they're carrying and maintaining that line appropriately to decrease or mitigate any risk uh, related to infection. So I think all those things need to be weighed. Uh, but one of the things that always stands out in my mind is, you know, we, we in vascular access, we always talk about uh, pr- preserving the vessel, right? And vessel preservation. And what we have to right, remember is that right. any damage to the vessel is irreparable damage. Many times we forget phlebotomy sticks are vessel damage. It's irreparable uh-huh. damage every time we're sticking. Uh, it's irreparable damage every time we are sticking the vein. And, and that's important for us uh, to, to understand in a grand scheme
1: The following interview was published on Season 2, Episode 7 of the I Save That Podcast on May Fourteenth, 2019. I'd like to welcome Lauren Bakke uh, to the show for our next segment of Beyond the Manuscript. Lauren is the mother of little Everly Baki, a beautiful 21-month-old 20, girl who began her life in the NICU following an ultrasound at 33 weeks, which diagnosed her with congenital heart defects. One of Everly's IVs began to cause some problems and eventually became infiltrated. And Lauren wrote a brilliant patient perspective article outlining her experience as a mother and Everly's experience throughout the whole process um, during the initial days. Of her daughter's life uh, for the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access, which is set to be published in our summer issue, which is due out um, in the month of June. And Lauren has been kind enough to carve out some time in her extremely busy schedule to join us to discuss the prospective piece, uh, Everly and-, and more. And Lauren, I, I just want to welcome you to the show. How are you?
8: I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. So, give me a little background about how you decided to submit this manuscript um, to JVA. I know you had some connections with myiv.com, which is a a great resource for individuals like you in your position.
8: So I um, got connected with um, myiv.com shortly after um, I had started publishing um, some blogs and some posts about how Everly was doing on social media. And it took me a while to be ready to be able to kind of share what was going on in our life just because it was a big whirlwind. But I felt like Mm -hmm. if I was able to help other parents or other patients or other families who might be in the same position that we were by hearing about our experiences, then I was willing to make myself vulnerable and really open up about what's been going on with us because I feel like I've had the opportunity to read blogs by other heart moms and other families with medically fragile children, and it's really helped me know what to expect and what kind of experiences they have went through, and it just helps me to learn and have some background experience. And I felt like Everly's peripheral IV infiltrate, I think it was kind of rare and kind of severe compared to any other cases of anybody else that I've really come in contact with from Mm -hmm. the congenital heart world. And so I feel like as a parent, I didn't really know anything about IVs. And to be honest, at first, I didn't really pay attention to them because I was so focused on her heart. And then I realized, well, like these are really important too, and a lot to learn. And so I'm, I'm just hopeful that somebody somewhere will not feel as alone because they were able to read this and relate.
1: Definitely. Well, I, as I understand it, it's been extremely well received uh, online. And and I'm looking forward to publishing it not only online on the Java website, but in the printed version of the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access, I really think that it's going to have a lot of benefit uh, with our, our membership base and our other subscribers. So can you maybe walk me through a little bit of of how, you know, everything sort of happened? You know, the the first with the discovery, I know, you had the diagnosis at 33 weeks and kind of what, what did you and your husband, I'm sure it was an emotional time, and you know how quickly did things move from there?
8: It was kind of a long journey to get to the 33 weeks. I had had some, even just getting pregnant, was a struggle. Um, right before Everly, I had had an ectopic pregnancy, um, and then when I got pregnant with her, the doctor started following her really closely because once you've had one ectopic pregnancy, you're more at risk to have more, so okay. we started monitoring her right away, and she wasn't ectopic which was great and we were thrilled and excited and then we got to 13 weeks and we're like yes we got there this is great okay things are going well and then I had some problems with my placenta and um, my placenta actually ended up being in two pieces so the doctors were monitoring to make sure that she was growing enough um, that they weren't going to have to take her out so in hindsight as much as it was really stressful to have so many doctor's appointments so many ob appointments it meant a lot of extra ultrasounds to check that she was growing and in one of the ultrasounds at 33 weeks the ultrasound tech said to me you know something just doesn't look right like the measurements just look a little bit off and so my ob read the report and he said okay let's just it'll probably be fine but let's just make sure you know we don't want to have surprises Right. And better to just know and not worry. And so then a few days later, they were able to get me in pretty quickly because, again, we weren't sure if she would have to be induced early because of my placenta. So it's not like we could wait to get into to um, get a fetal echo. So I went to the fetal echo and the doctor looked at me and he said, so you came alone, huh? <laughs> and I was
6: like, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah,
8: so lay it on me, buddy. Yeah. And, um, you know, I really didn't think that something else was going to be wrong because I felt like enough had went wrong already. (laughs) But um, so he sat me down, he drew me a picture of my baby's heart and he said, your baby's not going to be able to leave the hospital without having surgery. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to call your husband tonight to explain this to him because I'm sure that this is a lot for you to take in, and I'm going to set you up to meet with these surgeons. These are the ones that I work with. You know, do your research, look around, look at different hospitals. So that gave us, we pretty much had to have everything decided within a couple weeks. She was going to have to be induced. The hospital's out by us. We live in a suburb of Chicago. So we're about an hour and a half on a good day to get into the city. The hospital's out by us would not have been able to take care right. of her or handle yeah. her. And so we. I got induced out there. Once I picked a surgeon, um, we met with the surgeon, we met with the team, we toured the cardiac ICU. And, and so, I mean, we really got it in place pretty quickly. And I think that there were two good things. I think one, it's good that there were problems with my placenta. Um, I'm glad I had a doctor who was really paying attention to it. I Definitely. also, for me, I'm actually kind of glad that I didn't find out at 20 weeks. I'm, I'm, it was a rush at 33 weeks, but I can't imagine how technique, long. Technique, I I want a couple there more
1: worrying. months there. <laughs> yeah.
8: Yeah. I mean, Perfect. that would have been a lot longer to sit there and worry. Um, I don't think that would have been good for me or her. So we had enough time to make a plan, to have a safe plan, to have everything in place, but not too much time to sit and stew.
1: What an emotional time. I, I can't it even was. imagine. Wow. Yeah, I told, and... every,
8: I told a few people and I said, don't tell anybody about it. Don't talk to me about it. Don't ask me any questions. I don't know the answers. Do not post right. about it on social media. Yeah. Nothing. If I talk to you about it, you're allowed to talk to me. Otherwise, No. <laughs> Sure. And now I've changed because now I will tell anybody anything they want to know,
1: which is what we're doing it. right now. Yes, that's yeah. Wonderful. So it to the to the NICU and I as I understand it, it was a category five mortality risk. Correct.
8: Yeah. So um, her surgery, her the particular defect she has can sometimes be fixed with a one-time surgery. That's a category four. Her heart did not grow enough from that thirty. Well, I had another um, ultrasound too, like thirty-four weeks to when she was induced. At about 37 and a half weeks, it, her heart okay. didn't grow enough. So I just have a baby. I'm up all, you know, I'm in labor for 24 hours and the doctor walks in and he's like, so yeah, that's not going to happen. She's going to have the surgery that's the hardest surgery to do. It's um, harder than a heart transplant. It's, not, you know, and she's going to have surgeries for the rest of her life. I'm like, oh,
6: oh, okay.
8: No. Um, so we got some different news right there. But they're like, here's the good news. Your surgeon, he does this surgery all the time. He's really good at it. Our rates for it are really good. So we really feel really good about how it's going to go. She's doing well right now. We're going to get her into surgery in a couple days. We're going to give her a body a few days to kind of just regulate itself. And then we're going to be on our way. And we have a plan in place. And so it all kind of changed again at that point. Which was again a lot to take in, but I think I was more in a daze. I think I hit my husband a little bit harder than me because I was really tired. I was just like, (laughs) okay, well, as long as there's something you can do, okay, there's something you can do, fine, let's do it. So, right,
1: we'll do anything for her, absolutely. So, and I know that, so she's in the NICU and and the surgery. And when, what was the first indication that you and your husband had that? one of her IVs could potentially pose some problems down the line.
8: Yeah. So I had her on a Friday morning and I asked to be released on Saturday afternoon because I wanted to go home for one night to see our um, Mm seven-year-old who was five at the time. And then we were going to go back the next day because that was going to, the Sunday would prep her for surgery and she'd go in for surgery on Monday morning. And so I wanted one night at home with him because then I knew we were going to be in the hospital for weeks, months. We didn't really know how long it would be, so I felt like this was my one kind of chance to get home and make sure he's all settled again. Um, Because I had never really been away from him, so that was also a challenge. And that night, that Saturday night, a nurse called probably at like midnight and said, hey, this IV is not looking so great. I think we need to move it. Um, Maybe we'll look at putting a PICC line in. Mm -hmm. We just got to see what we can find. We're having a hard time. She's really small and we're just having trouble. And I was like, okay, okay, do whatever you got to do. I mean, we got to make sure the heart medication keeping her alive right now stays in. So, whatever you have to do, find an IV spot. And I. Didn't think all that much of it. That IV came out. They put a new one in. They called back and they said we didn't need a PICC line. We got one in her foot. It's working great. And then Hmm. I didn't think about it again, because she went. She got intubated, which seeing your newborn baby who's awake intubated is probably one of the worst things you can see. So I was so focused on that that I and I wasn't looking at her IVs. I didn't even think that I should look at her IVs or inspect them or see what color
1: they are. Right. She was just, you were just happy that she was accessed and getting the medication that
8: treatment she needed. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did not pay attention to that IV again until after surgery.
1: So what did it look like after surgery? And and is that when you it? It
8: was actually, it was still fine after surgery. And um, the nurses at some point, and there's so much that goes up and down. Um, the surgery she had called the Norwood, they come out with so many lines, so many tubes, so many monitors. I mean, there's something coming out of everywhere. And things change instantly. Like you can try to keep like notes on this went up, this went down, this medication changed. I mean, really, thank goodness, these nurses are brilliant. Um, right. And there's nurse practitioners that help the nurses and there's the doctors there's the intensivists there's the surgeons I mean there's a big team especially for those first couple days right out of the Norwood surgery and so at some point they said oh it's not it's not looking so good and they pulled it out and nothing it looked fine and then all of a sudden this big yellow thing started to show up on her foot and it just kept getting bigger and more yellow as the days and weeks and months went on and I had never seen Apparently, it's called granulation tissue. I learned. Mm -hmm. I had never seen granulation tissue before, so the yellow of it was quite shocking to me that there was this yellow stuff coming out of my newborn baby's foot.
1: I don't, I don't doubt that. (laughs) So, so you mentioned it's, it was weeks and essentially months where it wasn't initially treated. I mean, how did things? Oh no, it was. So we treated
8: it right away. It just didn't okay better. Um, Gotcha. So initially when when there have been other infiltrate wounds, which I don't think have ever seemed to be as bad as this particular one, um, they had started by using like medicinal honey and some special bandages that kind of like pull out the kind of like burn, if you will. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I don't know all the medical terms exactly. I've learned a lot about the heart, but everything else I'm still learning. Um,
6: sure, I am and too. And so
7: <laughs>
8: they, were, they were shocked at first that it, it really wasn't getting better. And so then they thought, well, maybe she's going to need a skin graft and maybe we need to bring him the plastic surgeon and um, the hospital that we go to actually has two campuses. So the pediatric plastic surgeon is not at the campus that we go to. So an Mm -hmm. adult plastic surgeon came in and he looked at it and he's kind of like, I think it's going to heal fine. You know, she's a baby. Babies heal fast. Let's just leave it alone for right now. Um, And to be honest, the cardio team was like, "Mm, no, we're going to try something else. So (laughs) they started putting a different topical cream on it. And in Everly's case, um, once she was discharged from the hospital. So we continued that treatment, but once she was discharged from the hospital, she was seen every week by the specialist team. Um okay. she was part of a high risk team and so I would send them pictures of her foot all the time and they were they weren't pleased with how it was going. And so they said, We have to get you into the um pediatric plastic surgeon at the other campus. This is something that we need somebody else to start looking at, you know, because there's cardiac specialists, like that's
1: yeah that's their special they do they
8: focus on the heart they are like this is we just think we need to get you somebody else and then at that point we started to do some different dressing changes some different medications, some some different things but um she's 21 months old and her foot is still not healed
1: the following interview was published to episode six of the i save that podcast on april 12th 2019 and we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Marsha Ryder, a research scientist whose major focus is medical biofilm infections and in vascular access, and also the 2017 Suzanne Herbst Award winner at the AVA Scientific Meeting in Phoenix, Arizona, as well as uh, Jim Davis, a Senior Infection Prevention and Patient Safety Analyst and Consultant at Eckery Institute to chat with us a little bit this morning about the patient safety list that ECRI put out uh, a short while ago. I wanted to also introduce Judy Thompson, Ava's Director of Clinical Education and Ramsey Nasrallah, Ava's CEO.
6: So
2: excited to have you on the phone. Now, the ECRI Top 10s Patient Safety Concerns was published. Number nine specifically, I think there's a couple that really pertain to vascular access, but number nine specifically, infections from peripherally inserted IV lines. That's pretty exciting to make the list. So I want to thank Jim, Marcia, and everyone at ECRI for, one, um, PIV is making the list, but secondly, for being on this call so we can talk about it. So Jim, just to start off, could you talk to us about who is ECRI? Oh,
9: great. Um, so no problem. ECRI, uh, we're basically an independent nonprofit. We're pretty much a trusted authority on medical practices and products that provide, hopefully, the safest, most cost-effective care. So you know we've been doing this for greater than fifty years at this point, so quite quite a while and uh we we've essentially built our reputation on uh how we do rigorous evidence based research, our dedication to our uh, we have a very strict conflict of interest policies um you know I can't have stock in any company related to anything we look at. Um, actually check my tax returns. So, you know, it's, it's a very interesting place to work as far as how we value that, our, our independence and our ability to give an unbiased opinion uh, about uh, things we look at. The other things we do are, you know, like this list, we uh, receive reports through the PSO uh, or patient safety organization that we run, one of the largest ones in the, in the country at this point. So we have about 2.8 million reports that come to us that we look at from a risk management perspective, but we pull out not only uh, events, but also we look at near misses, and uh, that's part of what we look at when we uh, when we put the list together. Um, personally, I've been I've been interested in PIV infections for a long time, uh, and I think that um, it's awesome that they're, that they're on the list this year. Hopefully, we'll get some traction around uh, prevention, having people become more aware that PIVs can cause you know serious life threatening infections.
2: Absolutely. Now you mentioned patient safety organization. Can you delve into that a little bit more?
9: Sure. I'd, I'd be glad to. Way back in 2005, there was a, a patient safety act. It was a patient safety and quality improvement act of 2005. And that uh, essentially authorized the creation of what are known as PSOs or patient safety organizations. And the goal there was for the government to help uh, healthcare improve quality and safety by reducing or you know, trying to reduce the incidence of events that adversely affect patients in a bad way so in order to make that happen um, HHS or you know the Department of Health and Human Services and AHRQ uh, published what they call the patient safety rule and that allowed uh, organizations to kind of delve into this report collection phase to help educate and aid the members of the PSOs, so you would join a PSO with a hospital or a healthcare provider. And what that act does is it lets AHRQ to list and designate the entities as patient safety organizations. So that's like an evaluation process, like AHRQ looks at you and says, okay, well, you have the expertise to do this. And what we do is we take the events, we treat it like it's essentially, you know, research uh, because we're getting all these reports and what happens then is they fall out into topics and and buckets of issues that we produce guidance, uh, educational materials, toolkits, all kinds of things for the PSO members that are with us to help them implement um, not only how to prevent harm to the patients by what we've learned by looking at so many organizations. Like I said, we have 2.8 million reports to, to date So we have quite a large database that we mine, get at what is happening, and our job is what can we do from an implementation standpoint to help the hospitals and nursing homes or whoever else mitigate the things that can be prevented, like like PIV infection.
2: So Jim, you mentioned all the reporting you get. Where do these reports come from? Because I know PIV infections, PIV complications. Are grossly underreported.
9: That is a huge problem. It's one of the main reasons why uh, we wanted to draw attention to the PIV issue. We have members, so what you would do as a healthcare organization or a provider, you could join a PSO. It's actually acquired uh, in most states. Our members essentially, uh, if you ever, you know, back in the day, we used to call it an incident report, right? Clinicians, physicians, risk managers, nurses, anyone can really enter uh, an event report into our PSO system. So we can, you know, and we, like I said, we collate, collect and analyze all those those events. So basically anybody that's a member of ECRI's PSO or one of our back offices can report to directly to us. We're not the only PSO, but we're, we're one of the largest in the country. Thank so you. basically our members that report to us and okay. all of that information is confidential. It's under patient safety work product, which is protected by the act.
2: That's great information. So, what is the process for selecting the top ten patient safety concerns each year?
9: Well, it's actually quite in-depth process. Um, so, we take the list very seriously because essentially, you know, we're, we're 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 guiding practice, right? We're saying what's important for people to pay attention to. So, we essentially rely on data regarding events, uh, concerns that are brought to us, and some and expert judgment. So, you know, we don't have to have um, you know, millions of reports to say something's a problem. We've had stuff on the list that have had a few reports that were really, really bad stuff happening. We look at not only the evidence that we have in the reports, the evidence coming up to us through folks like Dr. Ryder, uh, who I've worked with in the past on uh not only PIV uh infection related things, but also central line uh related infections. So, that list, we pull in all these experts from the clinical arena, from academia, from wherever uh, is appropriate based on the topic, and we, we look at the evidence and weigh the evidence, and we also pick things that we can do something about. And if we can't do anything about it, we actually keep looking at it to find the things to prevent or mitigate those risks. So it's a, it's, we have a whole team that comes together. So we'll bring a topic in equity employees submit the topics based on their experience and what they're working on from a research perspective those uh, topics get uh, presented you almost have to like defend your topic so you have to have enough data enough of an argument to say this is really happening this is really concern it deserves to be on the list this year to give an example there's probably about 20 or 30 people that sit in a room uh, for a long time and deliberate on uh, you know what uh, is on the list, considering all the expert opinion, all the evidence, all the published research, and our reports. So we try and put things on the list that that really, really need attention, and like again, we can do something about it as far as implementation and prevention to make it worthwhile for the hospitals to focus their efforts on, and other healthcare providers like ambulatory care and nursing homes. But it's a it's a it's a lengthy process. Almost that's sometimes it's like. Defending a dissertation, but um, and that's where and that's where the evidence comes in. Like I said with with Dr. Ryder, so I figured, okay, you know, it's probably time to get PIVs on the list. What evidence do we need? Um, so we pulled out our events and said, yes, this is happening, most likely underreported because people don't know uh, when it comes to a PIV infection, um, which we talk about a lot. Is you know, the IV could have been removed yesterday, and it's out of sight, out of mind at that point. So they come in with, you know, they, they either come, well not come in, but they develop a bacteremia and people attribute it to something else. Like maybe they have a central line and the IV was left in too long. It should have been removed if they have a central line. But that happens where you know you you're taking care of a patient, they have a central line in, they have IVs in that they had before the central line was placed, and people kind of forget about them and or remove them and never and attribute the infection to the central line, not the PIV. Things like that where we can come and say, okay, well, look at your process. Do you have a process at all? How can we help you with that? And uh, looking at essentially mitigation, but drawing attention to what everybody takes for granted. Right? I mean, the last time I looked, there was 20 million PIVs <laughs> in, in the United States alone. At least. At Plus least. or minus, yeah. yeah. <laughs> minus a million? I don't, I don't know. But the last time I, the only literature I could find was was about 20 million. You guys probably know a little better, but you know, it's a common denominator. It doesn't matter whether you're a kid or you're a geriatric patient. Everybody gets an IV line, and does everybody need an IV line? I
2: I can imagine yeah. that meeting where you're basically defending your dissertation can get rather heated. Rather, I mean, it would be fun to be a fly on the wall in that room. I believe. Yeah,
9: it, it actually is fun. We don't. We don't get. You know, the, the cool thing about equity is we don't. It doesn't get heated. It's very Socratic. It's very academic. And whatever opinions are expressed, whether it's critique or not, at the end of the day, around here anyway, when we get critique, we all know it's to make the product better. It's not, it's not personal. So right. maybe, maybe defending a dissertation might have been a little harsh, but it's. it's <laughs> uh, you need to come prepared. You know, you're 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 talking about something that is going to change practice in healthcare organizations by reading our list. So we, A, we need to make sure we get it right, and B, we, we need to make sure that we have enough evidence to mitigate whatever the risk is that we're talking about, or if it's something like PIVs that needs attention and doesn't get it.
2: Well, I, for one, um, am very thankful because you did get it right. There's so much belongs here. But why did you think infections from PIVs are an important topic for patient safety?
9: I worked, a my, my, little bit about my background, is uh, I started out in critical care. Did everything in critical care, from being a, a graduate nurse in critical care to a unit manager, then flipped over to infection control a, a you know good while back. You know, working in a large teaching institution, of course there was a lot of PIVs but also a lot of central lines. So I started realizing, um, kind of noticed it as a clinician because I had a, a patient that will that I'll take with me forever, 40 or 50 year old guy, I can't remember off the top of my head, got a spinal abscess uh, with Staph aureus and Staph epi. and the spinal abscess. Nobody could figure out, you know, what what the deal was, where it came. It had pretty bad arthritis, especially in his spine. And what wound up happening is, you know, had this abscess, got a bacteremia, developed this abscess, and the pressure from the abscess was so bad that we had to go in surgically because we were afraid that he was going to have some sort of. Uh, paralysis as a result of the pressure on his spine. Unfortunately he did have uh, some paralysis because of pressure on the spine. It was only through an incredibly extensive investigation done at the clinical level that we figured out that it was from his PIV. The the introduction of the bacteria uh, and the resultant bloodstream infection and subsequent abscess embedded in the spine was traced back to uh, a PIV that was left in too long. So that was my personal you know like okay holy crap as a critical care nurse I took PIVs as you know it's, it doesn't hurt anybody right bacteremia. your lines make bacteremia as well no not really any break in the skin is you're breaking down the person's natural defense so when I got to ECRI about eight years ago these things they you know, clinically kind of stick with you so I started digging around you know looking for evidence that PIVs were an issue both in the clinical literature and our reports here. You know, lo and behold, I found that there was enough evidence. I think uh, it was like 2012 or 13. Um, I, I wrote an article, you know, about the. It was called. Uh, it was about dwell time, basically, and, and why are we leaving IVs in? You know, for signs and symptoms of phlebitis or other things, and you know, they're saying remove it for an indication, and they would list fever. So you know, I'm, I'm thinking. Oh, if you have a fever, you already have the infection. So it's kind of like you put the the cart before the horse. So you know, what are we? You know, again, uh, looking for mitigation. So kind of drawing attention. So I wrote that article. Actually, Marcia, uh hooked up with me. Well, we we were talking way before that on about central lines uh, with timing of infection. So we started to bring the same metrics in the PIVs and found that you know. And as did Mackie and other folks uh, way back in the day uh, found that, you know, when when you're looking at 72, you know, three days, maybe four days, but not the 96 and not the clinically indicated uh, as maybe a prevention. And the evidence is still kind of coming in on that. So, you know, that's essentially how it progressed to the list. Felt, you know, as many others did at ECRI that it was a uh, the, the tip of the iceberg that we could see here, given the data that we have, and drawing attention to it, so people, so it's on the radar. So there are, so people do surveil for it from an infection control standpoint. So they do put processes in place uh, to prevent things that can be very serious and, and not attributed to the line. Like in my example, they don't, we only figure that out way too late. The other thing too is the IV teams. We we. If you're lucky enough to still have an IV team, or, or you know, because in my experience, most of, the, most of the IV teams were taken away from a cost perspective. But, you know, I think the reinstitution of clinical experts at the bedside through the mechanism of IV teams, you probably should be going back to that, my opinion. But, uh, you know, why would you remove those folks from the bedside uh, from a cost savings perspective? So, again, hopefully by surveilling from PIVs and, and that type of thing, We can build the body of evidence and make the business case again uh, if your IV team has been, you know, dismantled or redistributed or or whatever that looks like in your institution.
2: Jim, I couldn't agree more. Vascular access specialists have – there's data out there that proves that business case without a doubt that by investing in the specialist, you can lower infections, better outcomes, longer dwells. I'm excited to hear your viewpoint as well. Now, there's – you've talked about PIVs being underreported quite possibly, and I couldn't agree more. And I think part of it again is um, our friend Russ Nazoff as said before, it starts with the name. It's peripheral and it's yep. not central. It's inconsequential. Some of the other concerns with PIVs is we don't think about them. We don't train our, our new grads and even our our folks that come in. We don't check competencies. So there's so many factors that go with this. And I know Dr. Ryder's done a lot of work um, related to PIVs and, and biofilm. So Dr. Ryder, what is your take on all of, all of this with this being listed in the top
5: 10 with ECRI? Yes, well, thank you. Um, it has been for some time great concern, uh, especially from the biofilm and the pathophysiology of infections there are so many components of this that we have not um, instituted or uh, established formal policy and procedure and interventions to prevent peripheral infection. Now, what we need to also expand this um, beyond, because when we say PIV, we generally think about the short, you know, one and a quarter inch peripheral IV catheter. But today, you know, our expansion of expert technology has allowed us to have multiple types of devices to place in the periphery. So that and our terminology needs to come around to address that as well. But nonetheless, we have the short peripheral catheter, we have the extended dwell peripheral catheter, and we have the midline catheters and and other names that <laughs> are, are out there. But all of them are at the same risk. All of those are at the same risk as the central venous catheter. And we have to go back to the underpinnings of the pathophysiology of catheter-related infection and the science of bacterial transfer. So when you take those two sciences and then apply them to what are the components of care that a patient needs when they receive a vascular access device of any kind, So they apply across the board. So if we kind of take a little, some bullet points there of what those components of care are, we begin with device selection, vein assessment, preoperative skin preparation, sterile uh, catheter insertion, dressing application, skin protection, stabilization, monitoring, and then in the monitoring, if there is signs of a complication, how do we diagnose and how do we manage those complications? That's a long list. And I'm sure all of us understand that those components and how to address them and manage them and procedure are not included in our nursing curriculum. And it's certainly not included in the curriculum when they uh, are hired or employed at a hospital or an outpatient facility. In the recent uh, survey uh, done by INS and the paper by Pratt and all, it's very disheartening in some ways to observe that of all those things that I listed, 80% or more of those components are provided by the RN at the bedside. And so from that perspective, you know, we have a huge educational Uh, effort to be made.
1: The following interview was published on Season 2, Episode 8 of the I Save That Podcast on July 1st, 2019.
0: And today we're kicking off our Vessel Health and Preservation series on the I Save That Podcast, which will continue throughout the year. And this programming uh, comes from the Vessel Health and Preservation textbook that is being endorsed by AVA, that's available through, uh, through AVA, it's being endorsed by a whole global consortium of different associations and and thought leaders and key opinion leaders. And today we are kicking off that series by talking to the two ladies who are behind its creation. Dr. Nancy Moreau is an internationally recognized speaker and expert in the field of peripherally inserted central catheters and vascular access practice. She's in her fourth decade of nursing and is both the owner and CEO of PIC Excellence. She is also an adjunct associate professor at Griffith University in Brisbane and does great work with the good people at the Avatar group who are frequent guests of the podcast. Nancy has won AVA's highest honor, the Suzanne Herbst Award for professional excellence in vascular access, and she is joined by her co-editor, Nancy Trick, who has practiced critical care nursing management, infusion therapy, and in clinical vascular access education for 40 years. She implemented the first Michigan hospital-based pic team in 1989 while serving as a clinical specialist at a 1200-bed hospital-based nutrition support service. She is a wealth of knowledge, experience, and leadership, and we have both of them on today to talk about vessel health and preservation. Nancy Moreau, Nancy Trick, congratulations, and welcome to the podcast.
10: Thank you, Ramsey. Glad to be Thank here. You so much.
0: Glad to be here.
10: Good morning, so, Nancys. This is Judy Thompson.
2: Good to see, hear you today.
0: Hi, this is Ken Symington from not-so-sunny Florida. I'm sitting next to Ramsey. Both, both Nancys, to, to, uh, cur- the current president of AVA, a past president and director of clinical education, and uh, also the, the AVA, the JVA editor editor-in-chief, Eric Sager, uh, behind the glass. Uh, for for this discussion today, Let, let's start with with how this started. Uh, Nancy Moreau, you had started to talk before we started recording about just the genesis of vessel health and preservation. Was this something that you know launched like a like a rocket, like came together really quickly? Were there some hurdles? Tell us about the story behind vessel health and preservation.
10: Well, the story behind it starts with Nancy Trick and um, Matt Beretti and the idea, the inception of wanting to have a pathway or a process towards best practice. Nancy Trick, I I think that you can introduce the vessel health and preservation subject better than anyone.
5: Well, thank you, Nancy. Nancy Ann Moreau from Nancy Lee Trick. Uh, One of our our many tags is that we are the Nancys. Let me just say that it was a pleasure to uh, engage with Nancy Moreau and thinking back on the evolution of process and where we are today. About 12 years ago, um, vessel health and preservation was basically an unknown topic in the field of infusion therapy and vascular access management. And through a series of events with Teleflex, we came to the conclusion that we needed to uh, be in a position to look at practice and encourage evidence-based practice from all the particulars of patients coming into the hospital all the way through discharge and and essentially at the end of their therapy whatever that might be, whether continuing it at home or in some cases stopping it altogether. Leadership of Teleflex saw the value in this and uh, empowered me to bring Nancy Moreau on as a consultant. And together we took our combined vision of what this could be and brought together a series of activities where we invited other thought leaders and practicing clinicians to test different theories and gather evidence and then began to form the model of what is today Vessel Health and Preservation. And so it it actually took multiple years. Its final creation comes from around the world and it's used uh, beyond belief in areas of Europe that we never even envisioned. So that's how it got started and how we began our journey to where we are today.
10: Well, and just to add a little bit, Nancy Trick talked about you know the process that we used um, through the application of what is now known as the Plan Do Study Act. We looked at the problems that were associated with vascular access, with administration of infusion therapy, within acute care and even within other uh, outpatient and other facilities, and tried to determine the best way to apply trigger tools or algorithms or processes that would promote outcomes. And it was quite an arduous process. We spent many years testing different models, testing different forms and applications working with our clinicians to identify those key issues and then trying to find solutions. And what finally came of it was a model that went through admission of the patient through discharge, applying the concepts of assessment and selection of the best device, insertion of that device with a qualified inserter, management, of the device during the treatment period, along with daily assessment, and then evaluation of the process at the end when the patient is discharged. And through these four quadrants, we were able to apply the best practices, the guidelines, the recommendations, and integrate them into the entire pathway model. Having said that,
5: Nancy, one of my um, observations during this, this process is that in many cases of the four-quadrant model, when we gathered our, our clinical expert and thought leaders, many of them were doing selective um, application of various components of each quadrant. And so while they understood that best practice was necessary, they, they didn't always see it beyond the here and now of what am I going to do at this moment to get this patient access? And so a large part of what we did as a group was extrapolate the various practices and then backfill it into a model like the quadrant, understanding that education around the individual practices was key to becoming a centralized model for vessel health and preservation. Well, absolutely.
10: Yeah
5: yeah so
10: consistency um, was so important to us i mean we were looking at trying to find ways to help clinicians establish competency and then apply a consistent practice and and that's where the forms and kind of the process came in to try and make sure that everyone was following the process
5: so i would just say that when we took this model and as nancy explained the model is based on the foundation of education and evidence-based practice. And as we took this model out and presented the four different quadrants, some of what the feedback was from those who would test it as a model in their area of practice, they recognized that they were doing selective pieces. However, the model itself was foreign to them. And so part of the success was helping potential end users of this model understand that it, we were not asking them to change their, the dynamic of delivering care in the, in, in the way of what they were inserting into patients, but to truly apply a model from an assessment piece through the day-to-day evaluation and the assessment of, of how these patients were being managed. And so we see a, a basic model of care which in some cases was task-oriented, and over time transitioning to a four-quadrant model based on education that was inclusive of the task but considered the requirement for evidence-based assessment, insertion practices based on, on the best person for um, delivering the care inclusive of insertion and maintenance, and then looking at how these products and practices patients were managed. And then how do you establish what to evaluate in terms of um, success as we would describe it? Is it getting the device in or is it completing therapy? while well, we mitigate the risks of successful infusion therapy. And so part of the change process was to explain the difference between the individual components and application of a four-quadrant model.
0: You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud.
1: The I Save That podcast is also now available on Google Play, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Alexa. We wish to thank all of our interviewees in 2019 and extend holiday greetings to listeners across the globe. Thank you very much for making the I Save That podcast part of your day.
0: The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the Fair Use Doctrine as cited in Section 107, of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.